everyone, this is Klaatu. You're listening to the Good New World Order, episode 12 of season 12. Today we're going to continue our exploration of the Linux file system, and by file system I mean the base operating system that you get when you install a typical Linux. By typical I mean Slackware. It might seem hyper-focused to say, oh, we're going to look at the Slackware set of applications, but actually, it's not, because, I mean, Slackware, I mean, any any Linux that you install is pretty much going to have a certain set of tools that they provide to you. And while there are differences here and there, Slackware is a pretty good, reasonable set of things that, honestly, probably end up getting installed anyway, in the end. Whether it's because you think, oh, I can't believe this thing didn't ship with Git, and you install it yourself, or because, or, or, or wget, I can't believe I don't have wget on here, so you install it yourself, or just some other tool, some other popular tool that you install because of whatever reason, happens to pull those other things in. So eventually they all end up looking like a Slackware system. That's, that's my new, that's the new rule. Rule of thumb, all Linux distributions eventually resemble Slackware. And I don't know exactly what that means. Now, in the previous episode that we managed to get through was actually quite some time ago. It was way back in... I'm kind of scrolling through. It was that long ago. It was way back in episode 4, it looks like. I had talked about Getty and A-Getty and Initab Gok, and all the way up to InfoZip. And after that, we got on some, some tangents, good tangents, uh, uh, talking about Zargs and Parallel, or Xargs, however you say that. Uh, Xargs and Parallel. Parallel's fantastic. Uh, we talked about Find. We had a really good episode about Find. So we, we kind of got off track in, in a way. But, I mean, that is the point, that this, that this tour of the typical file system, or, or base install, I, should, I shouldn't say file system, because that has a different meaning. So a base install, typical install, provides you certain things, and, and I, I had hoped that reviewing all of these things might shed light on what these things are. So it's supposed to get us off track. Now, we, we got very off track the previous two episodes where I spoke about package source, which doesn't ship with Slackware, and, and Porteous, which, which is a completely different thing. It's a non-uninstallable non-installable live distribution of Slackware. So I do apologize for getting off track in in those episodes, but not really, because it was interesting stuff. So in this episode, I want to go back and and review two things that I, I probably didn't give as much attention as I should have, and then continue on from InfoZip, or, or rather the next entry, which is iNotify. So grep and gzip I kind of quickly glossed over, and those are probably worthy of some further discussion. Gzip, not a whole lot of discussion. I just kind of wanted to mention one or two things that I'd that I decided that I, I probably hadn't discussed enough because there's, so there's one thing about Gzip that confuses a lot of people. And and I say a lot of people knowing full well because I used to have to look it up all the time and and it was one of those things that he, I I could tell from the con the 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 the, the number of answers uh, that you get when you do a search for this problem, you you just kind of see that yeah a lot of people get confused about this, and I I kind of feel and I I'm speaking off the cuff here but I kind of feel like this is a little bit um, atypical in, in if you're used to a bunch of POSIX tools, I think the thing that you expect gzip does not does not do so here's what i'm talking about let's say that you've got some files and you have you have created a tar archive of these files now you decide you want to gzip them so if you do a gzip for instance foo.tar and then well if you do that then what happens is that foo.tar becomes foo.tar.gz so, so you, the 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 tar archive that you have just gzipped, well, I mean, maybe not surprisingly, is now zipped. And in a weird way, that is surprising in the Unix world because we're so used to having something go to a standard output. So, really, what 
what I think most people expect is more like a gzip foo.tar uh, foo.tar.gz or or foo.tgz something like that because we kind of want to we want to give the the thing that we want to create or, or the thing from which we want to create something and then we want to give the thing that we want to create so source to target source to target that's what we're trained at, at least from like from from little tools like copy and move and and frankly that's probably enough but it's 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 ingrained in us that we we provide command source target that's just what we're used to so the fact that gzip does not provide that that functionality is a little bit odd to a lot of people so the way that you do it is you redirect the output of gzip but the thing about that is that you you have to you have to intercept the output of gzip you have to you have to actually tell gzip to write something to standard out again that is that that to me feels fairly atypical and there's there's probably a very good discussion about whether or not that is actually atypical, and maybe there's a reason, and all this other stuff. Don't care right now. I'm just going to say, at least on the surface, it feels atypical to a lot of people. So what we can do is gzip, and then I should probably look up what this actually means. Yeah, okay, it doesn't mean anything. So you can do a gzip dash dash stdout so standard out and then do foo.tar. well it would just be tar i need to un unzip this hold on let me let me grab the thing that i just zipped for my example back out okay there we go so it's gzip dash dash std zero uh, out and then space foo.tar and then a redirect so that's the greater than symbol and then foo dot for instance tgz and now if we do a list we see that we have both foo dot tar and foo dot tgz all in one folder and if i do a tar tvf uh, t is to view a file or to list the contents of a tar archive v is verbosely and then the file flag would be foo dot tar so that looks like it's got xml dot xml and xsl dot xsl this is a old demo folder that I was using for a Hacker Public Radio episode. And then tar tvf foo.tgz, uh, same two files. So it, it in other words, it, it, it has gzipped correctly. But we've intercepted that output with the dash dash standard out flag. Now the shortcut for the standard out flag that I remember uh, just off the cuff is dash c. So obviously that has no meaning whatsoever. It's an arbitrary flag dash c completely meaningless but you can do that gzip dash c foo dot tar and then redirect into foo dot tgz or tar dot gz or you know whatever you want to call it really and that and that works accordingly you can also if you don't like shortcuts and prefer longer cuts you can do dash dash to dash standard out std out and then foo dot tar and redirect to foo.tgz. So that's my gzip tip of the day. Uh, you, do, you can treat gzip a little bit more like a what I think of as a standard Unix tool. You just have to intercept its output with the dash C or dash dash standard out flag. Cool? Alright. And that probably, I guess, begs the question of how one does that very very common activity of tarring and then zipping a file and i think probably most listeners of this show at least the audience i know of right now probably kind of knows this pretty well but i'm gonna gonna say it anyway which is that gzip it acts on on a file so if you try to zip a folder it will fail because a folder or a directory is is not it is a file according to linux but it is also not a file it is a it is a pointer to several other grouped files so if you try to zip that up it doesn't know where to put the information basically 
So what you have to do is you have to gather them into a container, which is a tar archive or a tape archive, and that's what the tar command does. So if you do, uh, let's see, what what do I have here? I've got, got two files here called xml.xml and xsl.xsl, so I'm going to do a tar dash dash create dash dash verbose dash dash file and I'm going to call it sample.tar and then I'm going to list the files that I want to include in this this archive and that would in this case be anything with a dot x question mark l in it and there we go it tells me even xml.xml and xsl.xsl has been added to this archive and I can do again tar tvf to view the file um, sample.tar and it shows me exactly what I have in that tar archive that's good so the tar command which you know we defined what file to create but if you don't define a file to create you can write to a standard out and the shorthand for that bizarrely is just to put a dash at the end of the command so it's tar dash dash create dash dash verbose and then whatever you want, whatever files you want to add to this archive, which in my case is just a wildcard symbol, an asterisk dot x question mark l, so that'll capture both my XML and my XSL files, and then space dash dash file, and again, instead of actually telling it what file to, to, to write out to, we just put a dash, and then that leads into a pipe symbol, and on the other side of that pipe we can do a gzip dash c for writing to standard out, and then redirect to let's do myfiles.tgz and now if I do a list yep there's myfiles.tgz and if I do a tar tvf for to view files I mean that's how I remember it to view files it's it's actually something like list verbosely file myfiles.tgz and there we go xml.xml is in there xsl.xsl is in there and and if we do a tar x xvf to extract verbosely the file myfiles.tgz we get the same files uh, that we would expect so there you go that's how to do all of that in one command so again that's tar um, probably cv and then the files that you want to create and then dash dash file with a dash pipe gzip dash c redirect to some file that you want to create all in one command and that's a little bit of a double tip for you because really it's gzip tip but uh, also a tar tip as well let's talk about grep a little bit because again I feel like I kind of just glossed over that one which is really strange because it's such a useful tool and the interesting thing about grep to me at least is that it's not only interesting for I guess what a lot of people tend to think of it being useful for which is oh I need to find that one file with that one string in it it's also really good for or almost essential sometimes for logic operators in, in a shell script for instance I, I use it all the time for that so if you're if you're at all used to like Python or e even something lower level you know that a lot of times when you're programming you have to compare some value and if the value is one thing then you want your program to go off onto one path and do a thing and if it's another thing then you want your program to go off on some other path to do something else so really really important and if you're parsing text which is a lot of what I do in real life then grep can be quite useful for that and and I do tend to use it a lot in shell scripts so there I mean there's a lot of different uses for this but let's just go over I don't know one or two so the first one certainly I, I think that kind of introduced me to a lot of different concepts in terms of how how it's useful to be able to manipulate data and and then look at your sort of converted version of that and th this is a really simple simple example but it might it it might it might 
teach you something that you'd never really thought about before. Possibly not. It depends. So, for instance, let's let's say that you had you you found a file in a in a shell script. You had located some kind of file, and you need to know, or you need your program to know whether or not this is the file that you really really want. So how how can you tell if something is the correct kind of file? Well, there's a there's two different ways, right? There's the file extension, or there's a f the 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 output of the file command. We've already talked about the file command in our overview of the basic install of of a Linux operating system, and you'll recall, for instance, I'm going to go to my downloads folder, and I'm going to look for let's just look for well here's a here's an RPM so which might seem weird to have on a Slackware system, but, but there's a handy command that you'll learn about later that converts RPMs into Slackware packages, so it's not not actually all that unusual. So here's an RPM. So if I do an ls of my, of my folder, of my downloads folder, I see a bunch of random stuff that I've downloaded over the past couple of months. And that's great, so if I do an ls-l, or even dash one, ls dash one, and then I pipe it, that's the number one, dash number one, uh, and then I pipe it to wc dash l, I see that I have 32 items returned from the ls dash dash l command. So I have 32 files to choose from. Now how could I tell a shell script which of those is the correct one? Well I could do an ls of this file, so or of this directory rather, so I could do an ls and then maybe a dash one just to make sure that I'm I'm sorting it such that it's it's one one item per line. That's what the dash one does. And then I could pipe that to grep. And let's say that I knew that I was looking for something called pandoc, P-A-N-D-O-C. So first of all, if I just do an ls dash one pipe and grep pandoc, that may or may not work, depending on what what the package or what the the file that we're looking for is actually called. Because if pandoc literal just lowercase p-a-n-d-o-c is not what the package is called then we might then we won't we won't actually find it we'll 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 find we'll find nothing because if it's a capital p-a-n-d-o-c or a capital p-a-n capital d-o-c or whatever grep will not find it so the first grep switch to know about i guess is the dash i which is case insensitive you can do a or or ignore case. So if you do a dash dash ignore dash case, that's the same thing. I just use uh, dash i because I'm pretty used to that by now. So dash dash ignore dash case pandoc. Ah, and there we go. There's pandoc. But there's also a so there are two things here. There's one called pandoc a direct. I assume that's a directory. Let me look. Yeah, a directory called pandoc, which is probably something that I. No, this looks like something that I made at some point for some reason. So there you go. Uh, so it's a, it's a directory called pandoc, complete complete false alarm, and then there's the the RPM, the actual RPM. So that's kind of important to to realize that you might get more than one result, even, you know, especially since you have to widen widen your net to try to really get all of your 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 possible matches. And, and in this case, we widened it by saying you can dash dash ignore dash case you start to you know you start getting more than maybe what you wanted so i mean there would in real life you could do you could do various things really you could do uh you could do a, a grep uh pan a dash dash ignore dash case pandoc you could do another pipe and grep again for dash i rpm that would that would narrow it down you can you greps can be cumulative so in in other words your first grep in that instance would have would have trimmed all 37 or whatever it was, 32 files down to just two, pandoc the directory and pandoc the RPM. And then so you pipe those results, those two results, back into grep, into another iteration of grep, where you look for RPM. And so obviously that trims it down to just the one match, just the one file that matches, because it has the, the, the extension RPM. So I could go on and on about the different ways that we could iterate over grep or, or use other tools plus grep. Try, try to stay focused, and, and I'll just keep going with more options for grep. So 
One other thing that you can do with grep, certainly, is use regular expressions, which I know there's a lot of jokes about how you shouldn't use regular expressions because it just adds to your problems and such and such. But grep is, I mean, it, 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 it literally stands for regular expressions. That's what the R and the E in grep stands for, is regular expressions. So to, to say that you're not going to use a regular expression with grep because you don't, because regular expressions are too complex is kind of silly. So we're going to do this ls again, ls-1, and we'll pipe it to grep, and then we'll do a dash capital E, which stands for, if I'm not mistaken, uh, extended reg, reg, regex. And I just use the dash capital E. You can also use just egrep, so just e-g-r-e-p, and then no, no dash E. Either way. So egrep or grep dash capital E, and then you know something like dollar sign single quote pandoc because you know it's going to be called pandoc lowercase maybe, and then close quote and then dot plus for any character any number of times, or maybe the plus means once or more. I'm not sure. I don't remember. And then a backslash dot so that the dot becomes a dot and not not a wildcard character. And then again, single quote RPM, because we know that it's going to end in the string RPM, and then close quote. And there we go. There, there we've narrowed it down to just Pandoc, any version of Pandoc, any architecture, RPM. Okay, cool. So another one, another grep flag, is the dash lowercase v, as in victory. So v... Uh, means invert match. So this is really useful because it takes whatever is matched and lists everything else besides. So for instance, if we do an ls-1 and then pipe that to grep-lowercase-v or dash-invert-match, if you can't remember dash-lowercase-v, uh, pandoc, then we get we get a listing of of 30 files without the pandoc listings, without those the pandoc directory and the pandoc RPM. So that, that can be useful as well, because sometimes you know exactly what you don't want. Or you know something that you don't want, and so you just add that to the mix. Like I say, you can compound greps, pipe, grep, pipe, grep, pipe, grep, just keep keep throwing them in there, and it's it's it, it's fine. Another good one is uh, the count. So if you do an ls-1 again, and you do a grep-c for count, or maybe even dash-count, I'm not sure, dash-c for count, uh, pandoc, then it tells you, oh, there are two files in this directory with pandoc in the name. I'm going to really quick try the dash-count. Yeah, so that's what that does. A couple of different ways to to, to change the output of grep. So grep's output changes depending on how you feed information to grep. So if we if we do so right now we've been doing this list dash one pipe into grep. You can also just grep files directly by doing a grep for instance dash i foo on all of the text files in this folder. So for instance asterisk dot txt, and that shows me by default it, it tells me the the, the file name, so foo.txt, and then colon, and then, and then the, the string wherein that, or the, the line wherein that string appears. Now, if foo, if the string foo appears in this file eight different times, then you get eight results for the same file, and then maybe you get two different results for, for another file, and then three results for the next file, and so on. So that's a, that's a lot of information, which in my work life, I actually usually need. That is exactly what I'm looking for from grep. But in real life, when I'm when I'm scrubbing files for, for one reason or another, maybe to see if it, it shares some kind of commonality with another file, I don't really need to, to know where in the file a string exists. I just need to know that it exists in that, in that file. So, to change some stuff around a bit, you can use, for instance, a dash L, and that would be, so, grep dash li, that's a lowercase l, li, and then the string that you're looking for, so foo, and then asterisk.txt. And that gives you a remarkably more concise foo.txt, bar.txt, 
baz.txt. It doesn't actually show you the line where the string exists. It just tell, it just shows you the file name that has had a positive match. You can reverse that with a dash capital L. So that will show you all of the files within your parameters. So in this case, it's an asterisk.txt where that string did not occur. Okay, I think, I mean, there's a lot more to grep, but I think that's, I mean, th that's where, I, that's how I use it. So if you have more tips on grep, you feel free to send me tips. I, I love to hear that stuff, but that's how I typically, those are the ones that I, in real life, tend to use. Hopefully they're informative. Maybe they've taught you something about grep. Maybe not. Either way, maybe it also gives you ideas on how to use grep. Because a lot of times what I'll do is I'll do like, you know, I'll do, let's just say, a grep check, for instance. Grep check equals, so I'm just creating a variable. Uh, and then backtick grep foo um, asterisk.txt. So then now I have something in my grep check variable. So if I echo grep check, then I've got, yeah, I've got the name of a file sitting in this variable that I just created. So now I can use uh, the test command. And if you don't know the test command, we'll go over that sometime soon, I'm sure. Test will will tell you, it will be able to detect whether the contents of that variable, so grep check, is equal or not equal to, you know, some some string that, for instance, maybe you expected. So maybe it is foo.txt. Now, if it's not foo.txt, then you will want to uh, move it to one folder. And if it is foo.txt, then maybe you'll want to move it to another folder or whatever. So there you go. That's that's how I use grep a lot in, in shell scripts and so on. Hopefully, it inspires you to do great things with grep yourself. You know what it's inspired me to do? Go get a cup of coffee. You should do the same thing. I'll be right back. great cup of coffee. I'm enjoying it even as we speak. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to really quick like go through a couple of different list items in this in this mega list of applications just because I figure it's it's a good idea to to keep plugging away at this because it's been very informative and it has led us onto many interesting paths if I do say so myself. So I notify tools that is I notify dash tools. It is a command line utility for iNotify, and iNotify Tools is a set of command line programs for Linux, providing a simple interface to iNotify. These programs can be used to monitor and act upon file system events. The homepage is iNotify-tools.sourceforge.net, and if you go there and have a look at what it says of itself, is that it is a C library and a set of command line programs providing an interface to iNotify. Now, what is iNotify? iNotify is a Linux kernel subsystem that acts to extend file systems to notice changes to the file system and report those changes to applications. So that's the kind of thing that you could use such that when things get updated, you trigger some other action, like oh, this file's been updated, we should trigger a new backup command. Or, oh, this file's been updated, we should trigger a re-scrubbing of the contents of this desktop, if you have a, a desktop indexing application, for instance. So, things like that. So far, I haven't really needed iNotify in real life ever. But here's a quick and easy, probably overly simple example of, of how it works. So if you do iNotify, or how one of the components of this iNotify watch-tools application or uh, package works, iNotify watch, so that's iNotify watch, all one string, and then dash dash event, and then some type of event. Now you can just exclude events and just look for everything, but we'll, we'll, we'll specify 
No, actually, you know what? Let's let's. Yeah, actually, let's just do all. We'll, we'll, we will not specify the event, but you could do that if you wanted to. But we're not going to. So we're gonna do I notify watch, and then in my downloads folder, there's this foo.txt file that I was messing around with earlier. So we'll just watch that. So that hangs or, or occupies, I should say, my terminal, and it, it's so it tells me, hey, it's, I'm watching this file. So now if I do, for instance, a cat of foo.txt, there's that. So that was a that was an access. And then I could also do sort of an echo quote hello. That's not a quote. There we go. Quote hello world. And then redirect redirect into my downloads foo.txt file. And that that should show up as a modify probably. Or yeah, I would think that would be a modify. Okay. So we'll go back over to this I notify watch. We'll control C out of it. And here we have, we have total nine, two accesses, one modify, one close right, one, no, two, two close no right, and three opens of the file name slash home slash klaatu downloads foo.txt. So there you go. You get a list of the files that have been modified within some amount of time. Well, I didn't put a time limit on it, so since I told it to start watching, that's what happened to that particular file. Now you can look at directories. You can look at specific files for a certain amount of time or for certain kinds of events and so on. Like I say, I've never actually used that in my in my everyday life. Or I, honestly, I hadn't. I should say I hadn't used it until looking at it for this podcast. Like I'd never used that before in my life. Okay, so that's I notify tools. There's install packages. Install dash packages. Now this is actually very, very specific to Slackware. You will not find this on other distributions, quite likely, because it's it's a Slackware tool. And if you read the comments, which I won't read all of them, but if you read the comments before the the, the script itself, it, it's a note from Patrick Volkerding saying that, well, first it says what it is. So this is a simple script to install a package series from the command line. If you're already running Slackware, you can just run this script to install the package. So none of this really makes sense to me. This was before my time in Slackware. I don't really know what they had to deal with. It says that he got the idea for the script because both, at some point, both KDE and GNOME couldn't fit onto one CD-ROM anymore, and so he wanted to make it easy to add a whole set of packages later. So as easy for, for you to do that as when it when you were first doing the initial install. So what I'm gathering from this is that it looks at a it's almost as if though, you know, you're kind of treating a a package set as as a big as a meta package apparently really. Um if you think of of Debian or Fedora how you you can say well install KDE desktop. That's not that's not a thing. It it's lots of things, but but they've given these separate packages, one designator of okay, KDE Desktop or or GNOME Desktop or or whatever, and so you you tell it to do that, and it pulls in everything that you need. So I think that's essentially what was happening here: is that you could say install package K or KDE, rather, because K would be kernel stuff, but yeah, KDE, and, and then it would it would install everything within that, except, and this is kind of why I'm even mentioning this script, is because it, it, it demonstrates something we were just talking about, which is, um, and it's it's only, it's you, if, you, if you if you really are curious, it is, it's only about a 12-line script, it's kind of, kind of nice, like, literally the comments outnumber the code, so, anyway, in, in here you see that it says, if grep add so so he's testing for if there is the string add all capital in slash var slash log slash setup slash tmp slash set new tag then true else do something else so you you can see that that you can use grep as as again a logic condition a condition of something and then depending on whether that is true or not you do something else. So there you go. It, that there it is in in practice. The next file is actually a little bit concerning because I, I remember seeing this before, and I, I now I feel like maybe we've 
we've already done this entire series somehow. I don't know why that would that would be happening. I'm pretty sure we haven't been through this whole package set yet. Yeah, I'm sure we haven't. So I don't know why I've seen this before. Maybe I, I saw it while preparing and I'm just thinking I've recorded it. So anyway, it's it's called install.end and it must be present. This is a file that must be present to signal the set to set up that this is the last directory in this package series. It serves no other purpose uh, than to do that, and also to make you curious enough to use ROT13 to decode this secret message. And I'm not going to tell you what the secret message is, because that would spoil all. Everybody's fun. Next package is ISA PNP Tools, and it is a package that I do not have installed, actually. I just I just now checked and it's not installed but it and that's probably because it doesn't apply to my machine and it's a package or it's a yeah a package of programs that allow ISA plug and play devices to be configured on a Linux machine I do not have ISA ports on this machine as far as I know so that's probably why it wouldn't have gotten installed next JFS utils or JFS utils depending on your accent I say utils because that's the the Unix geek who taught me about a bunch of util packages used to say it like that, utils. So JFS utils is utilities for managing IBM's journaled file system, which is the file system that I typically use by default, and so I actually use this package quite a lot. JFS underscore debugfs, JFS underscore fsck, JFS underscore fsck log, JFS underscore log dump, JFS underscore makefs and JFS underscore tune. I, I use that quite a bit. I still don't know why I keep using JFS, except that I started using it as kind of a test case. I just thought, well, I should try JFS, see how it treats me. And it has just treated me so darn well that I I have not moved on. I meant to move on, I think, but but I but I've not moved on yet. Okay, next one. So that was all the J's. That was all the I's and all the J. Well, not all the I's because we talked about I, I, or no, info, info zip last time. But yeah, so we're through I's and we're through the J's now, all one of them, it, it, within the A package set. And and now we we come to KBD. KBD is the load and save keyboard mappings needed if you are not using the U.S. keyboard map, and I am not. This package also contains utilities to change your console fonts. If you install it, you'll get a menu later on that lets you select from different fonts, which, yes, I did get that. If you like one, you can make it your default font. So all of that, this is all talking about the, like, setting your font and stuff. That's not your your system font. That's your, your terminal, or not your terminal, your console font. And in fact, there's a command on Slackware, at least, called set conf set console font, which lets you choose between a bunch of bitmapped fonts so that when you boot in when you boot up uh, and you don't have it set to log in straight to a graphical uh, a GUI ma management system like a KDM or XDM or something like that then you you're you're staring at at your console your text console and at some font that you have chosen from the set console font and and all of this is is controlled apparently by KBD which which is kind of the the package for setting keyboard preferences so i don't use well i guess maybe i use the us map but no i don't think i do i mean i think that would be the us map the qwerty map so what i use is is dvorak and so if i if i set that myself which i do not then I would do that with KBD. Now, in real life, I just set it... Well, I set Dvorak for the console when I first set up my computer. So it, it all happens invisibly for me in the background. And then for, for the GUI, if I have to change it or, or set it such that it can be changed, then I just do that in system settings. So I really don't use KBD directly myself. I use xmod map a whole heck of a lot, but I don't think that's I don't believe that's part of this package. I guess I could find out using grep. So I'm going to do a grep xmod map on var log packages and then all files in there. Just asterisk. And it does look like so there's a separate package called xmod map specifically, which I I I assumed there was. But interestingly there there are some 
there are some files ending in .xmodmap in in this kbd package that we're talking about right now so i'm going to just kind of quickly do a less on one of these files and this is located in slash user doc kbd version dvorak dvorak dash l dot x mod map i don't want that one i just want the normal dvorak dot x mod map there we go and it looks like this one is a series of key definitions so key sim q equals quote right quote double key sim w comma less key sim e period greater key sim r lowercase p capital p key sim t lowercase y so it's 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 the entire it, it's every single it's swapping out the definitions of every single key based on a i guess a standard qwerty keyboard and and replacing those values with what it it ought to be with in, in a Dvorak setup. So that's kind of neat. That's very handy to know about. I can probably use this at some point. Uh, I mean, I mean, for probably I am I am using it probably. I'm invoking it somehow. I'm sure. But uh, now that I know that it's there, that's pretty handy. Okay. So that was KBD. And then there's kernel firmware. And kernel firmware is firmware files for the Linux kernel. You'll need these to use certain hardware drivers with Linux. So I imagine those are all blobs of something. And then there's kernel generic, which is the Linux kernel with built-in support for most disk controllers. For file system support, or if you need to load support for a SCSI or other controller, then you'll need to load one or more kernel modules using an initial RAM disk or initRD. For some, uh, for more information about creating an initRD, see the readme.initRD file in the boot directory. Okay, great. Very useful, very useful. Um, so kernel compiling is one of those things that used to be a hot topic among the Linux community, and I, I do feel at least in in my experience so far I kind of I kind of feel like it's fallen off a little bit like people people aren't so worried about it anymore one way or the other really and, and I, I I think that's a generalization obviously a lot of people I'm sure care very much but I, I just I don't feel like it's as much of a big topic anymore and for me it's certainly changed I've said this before so I won't belabor the point too much but it was a, a really great update at around 2.6 uh, 0.38 kernel upgrade version, and I think it was, well, it was .38 something, uh, and and it introduced this, I think they said it was a 200-line patch, to make basically low latency the default for Linux. It was, it changed, I think, most multimedia, m most multimedia users experience it just it absolutely shifted everything from you have to install some kind of hack to open up permissions for this user to do real-time or real-time like operations in this audio program or whatever it was to just not even having to worry about it and a lot of times you you had to even recompile your kernel with with patches from i think it was from red hat providing real-time latent low latency you know actual real-time capabilities to your kernel and so it was kind of a a major deal and and now it's just not anymore it's really really something that you just don't even have to worry about so yeah and and i mean on every linux distribution that i can think of when there's some kind of major security problem they release a new kernel for you so i mean even quote unquote on Slack where they do that. So, if if there's some major vulnerability, the likelihood of you rushing home and having to recompile a kernel in order to, with all the new security patches, so that you're you're not you're not compromised in some ways, is, is it's pretty low to be honest. So, as as much as much fun as it is to be able to go through and kind of design your own kernel. It's just not that much of a it's it's not that big of a deal anymore. I don't feel like that said uh it is something that is possible, and that's kind of refreshing because the kernel 
A lot of people don't really understand what the kernel is, and to be fair, I mean, I don't really understand what the kernel is. It's not like I've written patches for the kernel, and like I've, it's not like I've, you know, I have real-world experience with the kernel beyond just the, 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 the times that I have compiled it and that I've had to modify it. And I think I've said probably on this show before that the first time I ever compiled a kernel was like with the very first thing that I was doing with with Slackware actually I had it on a Sony Vio that I'd gotten for free and and it was a new computer I'd gotten it for free by doing a bunch of online like quizzes or something like that or or, or signing up for some advertisement you know it was some ridiculous scheme but I had had a friend who had done it and and I and they had gotten a free laptop and so I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. It's a crazy idea, but I really want to get started on this Linux thing in earnest. So I'm going to try to get a laptop. So I, I did all these ridiculous things, and I had to, I had to, you know, you, you signed up, and then I had to cancel really quick before they actually pulled me into their system. But it was, I got in early enough that I actually got this free laptop, and it was amazing. That's the only time anything like that's ever happened, and I'm sure I was so borderline on being scammed. I was, I was just barely able i think to uh to scam the scammers and and to my surprise they sent me a laptop at the very end of it and i think i must have been one of the last ones because i had some friends after me try it and kind of they got scammed pretty much oh well um that was a pity but yeah so 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 i've i've compiled kernels and and on this laptop that i had this sony laptop i had a wireless card that had not been integrated into the kernel yet. So I had to, I, I read up on in the Slack book on how to compile kernels, and I, I found out where the driver for this wireless card was, and I got the driver, the, the patch for the driver or whatever, and I downloaded the latest kernel, and I combined the two, and then I combined the kernel, and from then on I had wireless on my laptop. And that was, that was my very first Slackware laptop experience. I, I I compiled the kernel and unlocked a feature of the laptop. It was supremely, supremely satisfying. So nowadays, it's it's that that's probably I I imagine that would probably be the reason that anyone would bother compiling a kernel, just because, yeah, maybe they're on some kind of cutting edge and they have some feature that does not exist yet in a kernel that they want to use, and so they download and compile. So as the final final activity of this episode, I will really quickly step through the the obtaining and and compiling of a kernel. And I'll do it fairly quickly because like I say, I, I don't actually think people are going to do that this do this that often anymore. So the first step would be and this is all this is all recorded on my Slacker Media site, so you can actually see this for yourself if you if you ever need to refer back to it, but it's it's also on like sensible websites like slackware.com, like docs.slackware.com rather. So the first thing is to get the kernel that you want. And the latest stable kernel is available always at kernel.org. Now that's the latest stable. You may, if you're on the very cutting edge, you might need something that's not the latest stable and you might want to go with something really, really recent. Like right now, the, the, the as of this recording, I've got 4.16 release candidate 5 having been posted on the 12th of March of 2018 so you could you could grab that maybe but I, I however you know whatever you need you would need to figure out what you needed and then you would um, you would go to to get that so you can do that either just by clicking the big yellow button on kernel.org or you can just grab the link and then w, do a w get of of that link once you've got the thing downloaded Again, now traditionally, what I would have done back when I was actually doing this more frequently is I would then go to these real-time patches that that I needed, and I would get the patch, and then I would merge that patch into the latest uh, code. But I'm going to assume that you're not doing that for this because, like I say, this this isn't really something that you need to do for for low latency anyway. Um, and then you can you, what you would do is you would extract the the kernel because it's in usually a tar.bz2 container, and you can unpack that, unarchive that, to slash usr slash src slash 
Linux dash and then whatever version it is. So let's just say it's 4.15 or, or yeah, 4.15 dot, um, what is it, dot 9 for right now. Uh, and then you can go into that directory that you just unpacked and do whatever patch you need to do if you need to do a patch, but we could also assume that you're doing this just because you found out, oh, they've got support for this this driver that I need, so I don't have to patch anything, it's just in the, new, the latest kernel, which, which happens pretty frequently. So once you're done there, you can grab a an existing config file, and that's, I think, that's a pretty smart way to go. Start from something that that you have a lot of reason to believe that w has a sensible defaults. I mean, you can do it yourself. You can do, do the entire configuration process yourself. It is quite manual, and you, you go through a bunch of menus, and you have to choose, should I include this driver or not include this driver? Should I include this driver or not include this driver? Should I include this driver? And it's just, it goes on and on and on. It is It takes forever. So what I do is I use the 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 latest good config that 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 I have available which generally is the one that I am running right now the, there's a config file for for the kernel you know from which you, upon that is running your computer right now now you can also find a sensible config file usually on 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 the Slackware's CD, for instance, on the download, I I, I kind of stumbled there because I, I realized that you if you know if you're not running Slackware, then that'll be quite different. But you can you can grab it anyway from from the install media of Slackware, and then you can use that as as the basis for your new configuration. And a couple of different ways to 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 modify that configuration. And I guess the most one of the one of the more common ways, or at least for me, is menu config. And the way to launch menu config is be in the directory, have a dot config file in that directory, and then launch menu config. Menu config, all one word. And that will detect your dot config file and it will attempt to append the new configuration options that are not already configured in the dot config. And it'll step you through all the all the new options that haven't been spoken for yet, and and so you'll still have a lot of stuff to choose, whether or not you want something on or off, on or off, but but you won't have to do the entire kernel because so much of it has already been configured. So for instance, I've got if I look in in my current configuration or my my current uh, kernel configuration, if I do a cat on that. I don't actually even have to do a cat on that. I forgot. I can do a wc-l on that, and there's 7,207 lines. 7,207 lines. Now I don't know how many of those are comments and and things like that, but but it, it's big. It's it's a big config. It's a lot of options. So seriously, you would want to use an existing configuration file. And that steps you just through the new stuff, like I say. So th there'll be a bunch of weird things, you know, like, hey, do you want to add uh, support for, you know, some random sound card that you'll never have heard of, and you won't even know for sure if it is a sound card. And then it'll ask you about ham radio stuff, and it'll ask you about, you know, just all kinds of different things, different networking ports that you've never heard of, and, and you're just... You no, 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 no. You get so tired of pressing no, and then you start doubting yourself, and you start, start you start thinking, well, what if I do get one of those fancy, hundred terabyte throughput network cards, which, I, as far as I know, doesn't actually exist. I mean, I guess maybe it exists, but I don't think it does. Um, and and you know, so then you say, well, yeah, I guess I will add that. Well, maybe I won't add it. I'll add it as a module. You know, so you just, yeah, it it takes all day. I mean, I mean, it can take all day. What I usually, again, starting from the config, I would basically ignore everything until I got to the thing that I actually cared about. I would make sure that that was included, and then I would continue from there. And, and that's kind of the way I think you kind of have to do it, because a lot of those options, just, they don't apply to you. And if they ever do, then you'll just recompile, so don't worry about it. Okay, so once that's all done, once it's all configured, then you do a make bz image. And that is make BZ and then capital I image. 
that doesn't actually take that long. And then you do a make modules, and that takes a long time. So once it's all built, so the modules I should I should mention modules are the things that are kind of hot pluggable. So your kernel needs to have certain things. Certainly, in order to boot, it needs a certain number of things, such as ext, let's say two, certainly, or maybe ext four, maybe JFS. In my case, it needs support for certain, you know, like your file systems. It needs support for that stuff. But then there's other stuff that it doesn't need to boot, and it may not even need all the time. So you can build those as modules and load them in at a later, you know, when when you're up and running and just kind of whenever you need them. So there there are generally a lot more modules than there are things within the kernel. And if you if you build everything into the kernel, then you're just going to have a huge kernel, and a lot of people frown upon that because they they consider that to be kind of a waste of space. So after that, you're you're sorta done. So you do you can move your VM Linux image to that's your current one, sorry. Uh, to so your compressed kernel image VM Linux to slash boot VM dot old or dot default or dot stock is what I use because it's the the stock install of Slack, Slack Slackware, and then you can move uh, the stock system map to slash boot slash system dot map dot stock so you you're, you're keeping what you know is good but you're moving it to something with a new name I mean you could do a dash four dot you know one four or whatever you're running right now um, I'm, I'm assuming we're pretending like you're upgrading to four dot fifteen dot nine so whatever you would you were running before you could move it and, and designate it that way it just kind of depends and then you need to move your new one your your new uh, compiled kernel into your boot directory so that when you boot you are able to use that thing and to do that you do a cat of uh, arch slash whatever your architecture is so I'm assuming it's x86 underscore 64 slash boot slash bz image which is what you compiled remember you did a make bz image and you redirect that into slash boot slash vm linux that's done and then you can copy the system map which will be in your current directory to slash boot slash dot uh, slash system dot map. So now you've got a new system map, and then you do a make modules underscore install, and that installs all of your modules. Now after that, you need to make sure that everything on your system knows that you have done this. So for me, that's editing lilo.conf. So I do an Emacs or a KDE su space emacs space slash etsy slash lilo.conf and I put my new image in there so image equals slash boot slash vm linux root equals dev sda1 or whatever it is for you label equals slacker media read only and then under that I have my old stuff so that's image equals boot vm linux stock root same place label slackware read only whatever and, and then I run lilo so l-i-l-o and that updates everything, tells me if there are any errors, and then I can reboot if I want to. Well, certainly reboot if I want to use my new kernel. So that's that's it. That's how you compile a kernel. It's not really that scary. Now, there's a big, big sort of caveat here, and that is that, that technically speaking, you should probably make a package before you go installing this, and there are different ways that different systems tell you you know how to do that. I I, I don't for Slackware. Um, as I was never taught to do it that way, so I just kind of I don't bother. I I certainly could. It would not be that difficult. I would move all the different components required into a specific directory and then make PKG, and that would that would make the package. And then I could install, and then I could uninstall later if I needed to. So that would be the right the quote right way to do it. But I, I do not because usually if I'm installing a kernel, I am keeping my old one anyway. So I'm not too bothered about whether or not, you know, I'm going to be able to reboot into an old workable system if if I've screwed something up. I've never just I've never really seen the need for the 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 package model, so I, I don't bother. But on on something like Debian or Fedora or or similar, they they very often kind of enforce that. And if you if you try to go against it, you'll you'll find that <laughs> things don't go very well. So 
whether or not you really should be compiling a kernel on whatever system you're running is up for debate. And, and certainly if you do, then you may want to, you know, take a step back, learn how to do an RPM or a DEB, and, and package it up for yourself. Now another caveat is the whole issue of the initRD. And initRD is well, it's called, it is an initial RAM disk, is what that means. And an, an initial RAM disk is something that you may or may not need. Um, it it loads a very minimal Linux system, or, or yeah, Linux file system into your RAM as you boot, such that you can load, for instance, kernel modules before mounting the root partition before you actually get to the root partition. So these modules might be required to support a file system, for instance, like ext3 or 4 or butterfs or xfs or whatever, or it might uh, it might control the um, it might give you access to the controller that your hard drives are attached to. So, you know, if you have some kind of fancy raid thing that's not built into that that cannot be activated until the kernel is loaded in order to control those things, then yeah, you need an init, init RAM disk so that you can have enough code on your system to control that RAID thing and then spin up your hard drives and find all the information that you need from them. So that is something that you sometimes need to do. So on Slackware, if you need to do that, you uh, it's not too hard. It's, it's kind of just a magical command that you just kind of have to you have to have faith in so it's it's make init rd so that's mk mk init rd and the different flags that you need to use don't they don't have long they don't have long options so you just kind of have to like i say it's a little bit magical so it's dash c which is clear the existing init rd tree so dash c for clear it's not that's not super magical, I guess. And then dash K for kernel version, and that is 4.15.9 in this example. And then dash M for module, or, or module list, I think. And uh, the module list would be the thing that you are, you know, the, the modules that you want to include in your initRD. So, for instance, if, if the reason you're making your initRD is because you, you realize that you forgot to include the JFS file system in your kernel, but you know that you need the JFS file system in order to boot your computer because your slash boot directory is JFS or 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 your slash USR is is JFS or whatever. Uh, then you would do dash m and then JFS. Or if you needed to do like a RAID controller, then it would be dash m and then the name you know the whatever module controls that RAID controller. And for that, you might need to look at the modules that are installed on your system so that you can even figure out what what module that is. So, uh, the and this is getting probably outside of the whole kernel topic, but but if you do an ls on slash lib slash modules and then the 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 version of your kernel and then slash kernel slash drivers and then a bunch well you'll find a lot of different categories and you can look in there and you'll you'll end up with a bunch of ko, .ko files is what you'll see and those are the the kernel modules that control different things and a lot of times they're just named after the product name or the product uh, serial number you know the, the vendor number of your your thing so drivers slash power slash adc battery .ko gpio dash charger .ko BQ25890 underscore charger.ko, things like that. They're, they're there. You can look around. Uh, you can use mod info, mod info, to look at a driver name and find out uh, who who wrote the, the module, what it's for, maybe. Uh, power supply driver for testing by Anton Vorontsov. It's GPL. It's it's called test underscore power dot ko. So yeah, you can find out a lot of information about that, and we'll we'll get probably we'll see more of that later once we get into that section of the Slackware um, file manifest. So there you go. That's that is all the I's, all the J's, and and at least through the kernel uh, packages, the the kernel category in the Slackware default install. Well, actually, and there's a K mod here, but we'll do that next time. So thanks for listening.
and I hope that you've either learnt something or been mildly entertained. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.